Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Rhapsody with Ro. Today I want to talk about an issue that I think over the course of the last several months and frankly since the last election cycle has been top of mind for many of us in America. Um, it's the idea of classism and, uh, and racism. Um, historically, I think we've seen that these two areas have been latent parts of the American identity, but since the election of Donald Trump, uh, there has been more light shed on this topic um, uh, for, for both minority groups as well as some non-minority groups. And these two groups would seemingly have different political ideologies, but one link as you explore this feeling of underrepresentation that these groups may have is perhaps um, access and inclusion uh, in the mainstream financial system. My next guest is someone who has over 40 years of academic and senior management experience. He's an expert in the areas of finance, banking, and capital markets, and he currently uh, serves as a professor at the Indian Institute of Management in Bangalore, which is a top three business school, not, not just in India, but in, but in the entire South Asia region. Uh, prior to his career in academia, he last served as the president of a major bank in India, he also happens to be my uncle and someone who I refer to as Periyapa, which in my language means literally older father. Uh, so everyone, please welcome uh, to Rhapsody with Ro, Professor P.C. Narayan. Thank you, Periyapa, for joining me today. Right. Thanks, Ro, for having me here. So Periyapa, although the United States is regarded as having a very well-developed and deep financial system, Financial inclusion continues to be a challenge for uh, many communities and households in this country. And for those of us uh, who are maybe newer to the concept of financial inclusion and some of the linkages to the social uh, groups that I was talking about earlier, could you maybe give everyone an overview of what it truly means to have uh, financial inclusion? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is a space I've been working on for probably the last decade and a half. So it's going to be very difficult for me to present in a very concise form what I've learned over the last 15 years. Uh, but just so we don't wander off and go in all directions, uh, I'd like to first of all define two or three phrases which would provide us the perimeters with which we would be carrying forward this discussion. Excellent. Uh, firstly, this whole concept of inclusion mm -hmm. and inclusive growth. Uh, this is the aim of every civilized society in the world today. Now, inclusive growth includes access to basic inputs like health, education, electricity, water, and other utilities. Uh, the next, those are basic inputs. Then you have the enabling inputs uh, such as access to financial services, access to information technology in today's world, and property rights, which is your ability to hold land and build a home, which is legally entitled in your name. Uh, and lastly, the complementary assets. So you had the basic inputs, the enabling inputs, and finally the complementary assets. And these are professional networks, knowledge and skills network, which is so fundamental in today's world. Mm -hmm. uh, financial inclusion, interestingly, is an essential in ingredient of inclusive growth. 
Now, let me try and paraphrase what is this financial inclusion, because oftentimes it's even misused. Um, financial inclusion is the process of ensuring access to financial products and services needed by, and this is the operating phrase, needed by vulnerable groups, such as the weaker sections in society, the low-income groups, they should get it at an affordable cost in a fair and transparent manner. Mm -hmm. And it should be offered by mainstream institutions such as banks. Got it. Now, if you look at most countries in the world, you will find these groups that are not included, as I mentioned before, would normally not be able to easily access the financial system and even if they are able to, they'll be charged a higher interest rate. For them to get an approval, to get a loan is far tougher. Mm -hmm. So there is an embedded, the opposite of financial inclusion. There's a pressure that they feel that they're financially excluded. Now, there's another element to this discussion, which is social inclusion. And the two go hand in hand, and hopefully by the end of our session, we would have figured out the very um, intertwined relationship between the two. Uh, social inclusion, again, in terms of a definition, is a process that ensures that those at the risk of poverty and therefore social exclusion gain or are given the opportunities and resources necessary to participate in economic, social, political and cultural life and are enabled to enjoy a standard of living that is considered normal in the society they come from. Mm. Now, if you take any country in the world, you will find people who are socially excluded are financially excluded or vice versa. Those who are financially excluded are the ones who are socially excluded as well. Mm -hmm. um, now, so although having distinct definitions, these two are inextricably linked in yes, societies globally. Yes, yes. And as a matter of fact, uh, in the course of all the work that I've been doing in this area, I came across uh, an organization. They have a wonderful website called www.socialprogress.org. Mm -hmm. You can go and look at it. They publish fabulous reports every year. Uh, the data I have is as of 2019, and I use extensively a lot of this kind of work in my research in this domain. Um, the social, this organization has come up with something called the Social Progress Index Framework. So they've taken all these various, the n number of variables that go to make this up, and they've built an index. The index has three parts, right? The basic human needs, which is uh, nutrition, medical care, water, sanitation, shelter, personal safety. Mm -hmm. All of these are classified as basic human needs. The next limb of the social progress index is access to uh, schools, education, access to information, communications, um, environmental quality, and the third part is the opportunity part that we talked about earlier, which is property rights, personal freedom, the ability to vote, 
the choice to decide who should be their political leader um, and access to advanced education, you know, college and so on and so forth. Now, using these various points, they came up with the Social Progress Index and they've carried out this study across countries, mm -hmm. right? And they've come up with a ranking of Social Progress Index for countries rich and poor, developed, underdeveloped, emerging, and they come up with this index. Now, it's amazing. I went through this thing. Who do you think would be the top few in the social progress index in your assessment? You know, it'd be, it, it's an interesting question, mm -hmm. but perhaps, you know, the my initial leaning would be to think of some of the major world powers, right? So places like the United States or, or China or something like that. You're wrong. You're completely wrong. Because on this, the countries that are at the top of the pack are the Scandinavian countries. Norway, Denmark, uh, Finland, Sweden, Iceland. This is the country at the top of the pack. Now, when, the minute you see this, you realize those are countries which have a capitalist head, but a socialist heart. What do I mean by that? The rich are not all that rich. The poor, the poor are not all that poor. You know, you would never have uh, a Jeff Bezos out of Sweden. But the poorest man in Sweden is a lot better off than the poor in a country like the United States. And that's what this captures. In fact, you'll be surprised. The United States, uh, as of 2019, is ranked 26th in the Social Progress Index. Mm -hmm. Two six. They're not in the top 10. They're not in the top 20. They're 26. And the reason for that is if you look around in your own socioeconomic ecosystem, you will find why the United States is 26. Because it's, it's struggling to find the equality between the myriad different kinds of communities, ethnic communities, that make up your uh, society. Which is not entirely the case with the Norway or the Sweden. They are more homogeneous in their orientation. Um, interestingly, your financial infrastructure is way, way ahead. Right? But if you are a Swedish national, irrespective of where in that spectrum you belong, you could walk into a bank and get a loan. Mm -hmm. You can't do that here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, if, you, if you don't have the right kind of uh, bank balance, the bank manager will turn you away. So is there an issue of financial exclusion here? I think there is. There certainly is. So people, I hope you understand the difference and how they are intertwined, as you said before, you know, financial inclusion, social inclusion. So, so absolutely. So I think one of the principal tenets that we are raised to believe in this country, in that this is a, a democracy and that we have lots of freedom, it's, it's also a capitalist society. So I guess the question I would ask you is, what about some of the other major capitalist societies in the world? Do they have the same issue? So, for example, uh, you live in India. Uh, India is the largest democracy in the world, and it is a capitalist country. How is this, you know, you know, this this uh, this divide in terms of financial inclusion? Do we see the same thing happening in India today? Oh, absolutely, uh, without a doubt. In fact, it's it's uh, it's far more 
uh, intense because the population in that country is almost five times the United States. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you, it's fair to assume that the gap between the rich and the poor is almost five times. Wow, yeah. Because it's the same democratic idea of governance that is taking hold in a much larger population, right? So you will find that uh, while the richest in India would be pretty close to the richest in the United States, in terms of their personal wealth, you will find that the poorest in India are a lot poorer than the poor in the United States, right? And therefore, the problem is exaggerated. In fact, part of my research right now is to try and figure out how to get over this. Because if you look at a lot of what the government of the countries have done is to provide a bank account, is to create an enabling environment where they can take a loan. That's all part of financial inclusion. So the government is very policy oriented in that direction. Mm -hmm. But where they completely miss the point is when you go down there to that little community, there are social divides which are insurmountable. Right, and that's going to take a lot of doing. The social inclusion, to my mind, in a country like that is more important. Because just like you have ethnic minorities here, you have the problem of caste in India. Mm-hmm. Even to this day, and I have traveled widely through the villages in that country, some communities, even in the village, have a sense of entitlement because he's the landowner. So everybody else in that village has to stand up when he walks into the room. Situation is nowhere near as bad in the United States. Although you still have a division in terms of the socially included, the socially excluded, the financially included, the financially excluded. So that the gap between the inclusion and the exclusion is much wider in countries like India. So we have a much bigger challenge than what you have in the United States. Well, Peripa, speaking of India, the question that I, I would have is, you know, how how has India sort of uh, faced some of these issues in terms of social inclusion? Or um, asked another way, what things has this new government in India done uh, to bring those who were previously financially excluded back to the mainstream? Okay. Um, this, is, this is just not a problem of the present government consecutive governments in the country, all of them democratically elected, have done an enormous amount of work in this space. But as I said before, the geography of the country being so large and being so diverse um, is going to take a lot of time. But if I were to look at what we are today versus what we were 20 years ago, I think it's been phenomenal improvement. So I'm an optimist that Mm -hmm. we will get there someday. Uh, In specific terms, what have they done? Uh, as an international today, uh, if you belong to the financially excluded, you have the following avenues. One, uh, you can open a bank account. And we have this um, the equivalent of the social security in India. We call that the Aadhaar. Aadhaar in Hindi means uh, authorization. Mm-hmm. They call it the Aadhaar card, which is our identity card. Now, on the basis of your Aadhaar card, you can go to any bank and be able to open your account. So you've been recognized as a citizen of the country with all the rights that go with it. Right. You can, you can elect a government. Uh, you can go and open a bank account. 
you can go and get a loan. All of that is in place. The problem is people in the financially excluded layer of the population, and which is pretty large in a country like India, are not utilizing or are not seeing the benefits of this because they are socially excluded. And what do I mean by that? There is a caste hierarchy in society. And there is a serious amount of information asymmetry among the people who are socially excluded. They don't know their rights. Mm -hmm. I hope you understand what I'm saying. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Now, that's a challenge. When people don't know their rights, you will find that trying to get them socially included or financially included becomes a huge challenge. Mm -hmm. And why do I say this? Because right now one of my research efforts is to find a correlation between financial inclusion and social inclusion in India across 540 districts in the country. Mm -hmm. I've got the data and it's amazing the correlation between these two, whichever way you run it, are those with high financial inclusion scores also having high inc social inclusion scores or vice versa, uh, you get a correlation of 96-97%, which wow. if you understand statistics is, is as good as it can get, which poses a very interesting challenge and that's what I'm struggling with. Which comes first, financial inclusion or social inclusion? I belong to the school which says if you bring in social inclusion, financial inclusion is easier to implement because it's more structured. Uh, the government comes up with these programs and I personally believe a lot of these programs haven't taken off because not enough attention has been paid to the social inclusion agenda. So I'm trying to argue through the research that I'm doing that the government, or could be non-government organizations, whoever, who have to take on these issues of social inclusion head on mm -hmm. so that the people who are marginalized, mm -hmm. who are socially excluded, get to know their rights, mm -hmm. get to know how to get what they can get out of the government. Mm -hmm. The government providing all of this is not good enough. Mm -hmm. So to my mind, in large countries like India, which are fair to say on the right development path, in terms of their economies, mm -hmm. uh, need to do more in the social inclusion space because the, the, the system already has a financial inclusion agenda. It is not working because the social inclusion aspect has not kept pace. Mm -hmm. uh, this is what I'm trying to prove empirically in a lot of my research, which is currently in progress. Incredible. So if I take this back to, it seems like some of the issues that you're describing are a lot of what we're seeing in America today. And if I look at Again, I, I, I wanted to, to think, think about this a little bit broadly, but if you look at what we consider to be uh, the base that Donald Trump has in this country, his election and his, his, uh, uh, to president was built off of you know, the working class white American who has, uh, for over the course of the last decade to two decades, has started to feel unrepresented uh, by, by today's government. You know, conversely, we've also seen, as you might have uh, caught in the news over the past month, you know, the murder of George Floyd, which has also brought to light uh, things that many have known in this country in terms of racial inequity, uh, but they're starting to be more at the forefront. Yeah. So the question I'd have for you is based on what you're seeing in the research and your understanding of American society, 
do you think the same would hold true in America that if there was a focus on whether it be, you know, those who are racially excluded or those who are excluded from a class perspective, if we focus on um, their social inclusion first, will that solve some of what they feel in terms of uh, their their current uh, misrepresentation or being unrepresented from their perspectives today in American politics? Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. Because I'll go back to the, the social structure that I'm more familiar with, which is India. Uh, if you look at uh, the present Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, uh, he's, he and his political party are very conservative in their orientation. In fact, in many ways, their ideology is akin to what you'll find among the Republicans mm -hmm. in this country. Mm -hmm. um, now, if you look at a lot of what Narendra Modi has done, in fact, the people who actually put him in that position to win an election are not the home base of that political formation. It is the people who were disillusioned with the previous government mm -hmm. because they felt not enough has been done. And if you, could, if you look at that segment of people, they're the ones who are peeved. Mm -hmm. They have no political ideology. Mm -hmm. All he wants is a better tomorrow. And they said, right, the previous government didn't give it to me. Let me elect a new leader. He seems to be more promising. Let me see if he will deliver. So all governments are under pressure to deliver. You know, this is the beauty of democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't understand the American political system well enough. But if Donald Trump must be having sleepless nights now, I believe, because the promise that he portrayed five years ago mm -hmm. had not been realized in the four and a half years. Mm -hmm. And he's got six months to go. Mm -hmm. And poor man, COVID, <laughs> COVID hit the country and that's kind of, you know, giving him more sleepless nights. If he doesn't get there and the people don't continue to have the confidence, the people, I mean, not the diehards who will support a political ideology no matter what. Mm -hmm. It is at least a third of the population in this country, mm -hmm. which is not having any strong political ideology. And the two political formations in the United States, from what I've understood of the politics in this country, are the Democrats, which are health care, education reform, minorities, etc., etc., which are the liberals. Mm -hmm. And then you have the conservatives, uh, which is mostly the Republican ideology with Wall Street, the rich people, etc., 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 now, if you look at a country, roughly a third would ideologically be wedded to the liberals mm -hmm. and a third would be ideologic, ideologically wedded to the conservatives. It's the middle third that is actually deciding who's going to come to power. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's even Stevens. I tell you what, it's got nothing to do with the, the wealth in the country or how rich and powerful it is. Democracy ensures exactly the same architecture no matter in which country you are. You take the uh, United Kingdom, neutral. Conservatives, Labour. Mm -hmm. That's exactly the formation. Mm -hmm. You take India, the Congress Party and its allies, and the BJP and its allies. The former are the Liberals, which is the equivalent of your Democrats, and the latter are the Conservatives, the equivalent of your Republicans. The interesting thing in the world today is and to me, as a student of uh, social sciences, this is fascinating. All these leaders that I mentioned, be it Trump, be it Boris Johnson, be it Narendra Modi in India, and these are the only three countries I'm taking, 
you could include Brazil in it, you could include several other countries in it. The leaders who are leading those countries today are all people from the conservative arm of society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But in their job, all of them are focused on improving the lives of people because they know they're the ones who are going to bring them back. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the beauty of democracy, right? And I think it's the best force in the world to make sure that those who are excluded will get included. Now, if you look at uh, the George Floyd episode and several other things that have happened recently, these are manifestations of that assertion. Mm -hmm. You know, people are saying, don't take us for granted. You know, you need us as well to be in power. If you're a smart politician and you want to stay in power, you will willy-nilly have to come up with a policy framework that will make the socially excluded included. And you will have to provide the financial architecture that makes sure that they have the right to live a better life. This is true worldwide. It's got nothing, it's not unique. Uh, in fact, there's something very fundamentally synonymous across these countries, irrespective of the level of wealth of each country. No doubt, the United States is a far richer country than India, and the United Kingdom is closer to the United States than India. But the, the issues at hand are absolutely identical. I've come to this conclusion. So, so that's outstanding. So maybe one, one last thing we can talk about is if by your, uh, by your research and uh, by your opinion, the best way to sort of bring about this uh, equal social and financial inclusion is to start with social inclusion. What do you think by your estimation are some of the, the types of social inclusion programs, mm -hmm. particularly that we could see a rapid improvement in this environment that we have in these societies that you're talking about? Um, I think there is, uh, the, the, the leadership in these countries should stop paying lip sympathy to uh, equality and, you know, equal opportunities and all of that. It's got to be demonstrated in action. Now, what do I mean by that? If you look over the last 20, 30 years, in fairness, in all these countries, those who are excluded in whatever form, have a voice much more than what they had 30 years ago. You take the United States, uh, some of the so-called excluded ethnic communities even today were far worse off uh, 70, 80 years ago. Wow. So we're moving in the right direction. I mean, this to me is great because when you're seeing a country in motion, you don't look at, uh, you know, three years, five years. You've got to look at the trend and how it has happened. I mean, these assertions about equal opportunity employer and uh, gender equality and um, the ability for people to get education irrespective of which social strata they come from. All these are very positive moves in the right direction. So at a policy level, we have made this happen. Unfortunately, there'll be blips in that because the politicians, with an eye on the next election, tend to distort these stories. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the biggest paradoxes in a democracy is the people of the country and the intelligentsia of the country are all the time thinking long term. But if you're a politician, your time frame is five years or four years. You got to get reelected. Yeah, 
you got to get re-elected. So it's a constant conflict in a democracy between short, medium term and long term. What's good for the country? Long term. What's good for the politician? Short to medium term. So you'll find this conflict. And as the elections approach, short termism supersedes the long termism. Wow. This is what you'll find in every country. And therefore, there is a tremendous consistency. But I believe that even today, democracy is the best form of governance. So let's bring in another country, China, where a lot of people think things are happening better because they got a guy who is the closest thing to being a ruler. He's got unlimited powers. He can enforce the education infrastructure that he wants. Uh, he can do what he wants with the ICT infrastructure, etc., etc. But I strongly believe that the story we have in democracies like the United States, and I'd like to say in India too, is a long-term story. So 50, 100 years from now, we're probably sitting back and looking at the road we have covered. It was sometimes two steps forward, one step back, but net-net, we have moved. I wouldn't say the same about some of these countries which have ultra-powerful, no-democracy system. I'm not sure it's going to work. So if we could sum and end on a good note, by your estimation, despite the fact that things may look bleak right now in America today, and a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, inequality has been brought to light, do you still believe that a country like America that has a history of racism, a history of gender exclusion, um, should celebrate the progress that has been made to this point uh, and uh, use it as a yardstick to say that over the next 50 to 100 years, this, this social exclusion and financial exclusion that we see will get better? Uh, it has to get better. It has to get better. Uh, this is the beauty of a democratic form of governance. The process will be slow. We, normal human beings, see through two, three cycles of this. You know, assuming a generation is 33 years, you see three 33 years max in your life. That's too short in the history of a country. Right? 100 years is nothing. I mean, the United States got, got its independence in the 18th century. Now we are in the 21st century. Your civil war was in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, today, the issues that you're battling with the same issue, right? But the scale and the scope is very, very different. Mm -hmm. I think that's what we should celebrate. So if I were to put the clock forward by another 100 years, I think we are a lot better. Be on any of those considerations, gender, ethnic communities, whatever dimension of social exclusion you take, things will look better. There will always be rich people and poor people in any country. The question is, how wide is the gap between the rich and the poor? Are the poor being denied something that should be their right? I don't think uh, equality, meaning everybody is the same, is ever going to happen in any country. There will be some guys who are smarter who will be richer. Some guys who are not so smart who will be poorer. But that should not be because you belong to A community or B community. So will there be rich people and poor people 100 years from now? I think the answer is yes. But would it be on the basis of what community you belong to or what gender you belong to, I think that will go away. That's what we should work towards. Amazing. I really, uh, I really appreciate you coming and sharing these insights. I think the folks that were, were listening today would wholeheartedly share your sentiment that we'd all love to live in a society like that where regardless of your, your race, 
uh, your gender, or the privilege that you were either born with or born without, that you still had the same opportunity and access. And I think that's what this generation in America is very, very, very uh, passionate about. Thank you, Barry Buff, for your time. Great. I really appreciate it and uh, look forward to hopefully hosting you on Rhapsody with Ro again. Sure. Thanks, Ro. Enjoyed the interaction. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to Rhapsody with Ro, and that's a wrap.